Well, good morning, everyone. And I am so glad that each one of you are here. And if you want to open your Bibles along with me, we are in Deuteronomy and uh, in chapter 20, picking up with verse 10. And I want to remind you that right after uh, uh, our second service, we have our church dinner downstairs, and we welcome you to come to it. It's a great time of fellowship and, and good eats, but I mean, it's mostly the fellowship that we like, so I just want to encourage you to come to that as well. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and I pray that you would use this time, this opportunity of gathering together in your name to instruct us and to encourage us in all your ways, that the things of this world, as the old song goes, will grow strangely dim as we look at you in the brightness of your holiness. And I ask, Father, that you would prepare the hearts of everyone here to receive your message and prepare me, Lord, to deliver it, that the words I speak would not be my own but yours. And now come and minister to us and through me to this beautiful flock, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I wanted to start off this morning with something very intellectual, and that's the penis cartoon. But I found this funny, but I also found a really interesting point in it. And in the very first picture, I don't know if you can see it, <clears throat> it's Lioness with uh, his blanket and his thumb in his mouth and his sister Lucy. And Linus is sitting there with his thumb in his mouth and his blanket and he's sighing. <sighs> anyway, here's how it goes. Linus is sighing. And Lucy says, stop that stupid sighing. And uh, Linus says, there's nothing wrong with sighing. And Lucy says, there is if it bugs someone. Then Linus says, it's scriptural. And Lucy says, it's what? And then Linus says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with sighs too deep for words. Romans chapter 8, Linus says. And Lucy says, I don't know. I'm either going to have to slug him or start going back to Sunday school. <laughs> But there, um, I mean, there really is an excellent point here in the sense that we have to understand that the Word of God is not only powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, it is the truth. It is the singular truth. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at a little bit in our teaching this morning, and I think it's something that we have to be aware of in the society and in, in the times in which we're living, and that is the fact that we have found that the philosophy of this world and of our nation has drawn people further away from the truth of God's word. And uh, I know this is going to sound silly to you, but I think one of the mistakes that we made in education, I'm talking about all education, high school, higher education, <clears throat> is the fact that we have left and turned away from the Bible as being the very center and the foundation of what we teach and what we believe. Many people don't realize this, but Harvard... Yale, Princeton, were all schools that were started to train pastors. That's why they were started. And the thing that's so sad, and I, I see it as I talk to young people, you know, all around me, is the fact that higher education has been used, I believe, of the world and of Satan in order to indoctrinate young people in a direction they shouldn't go. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am so glad that 
my physician went to medical school, and I'm so glad that my physician knows uh, my, my right hand from my left hand. You understand what I'm saying? But these are courses that you're taking that are, have very specifics. I'm glad they know anatomy and physiology. I'm glad if I have an engineer working on a project for me that he knows all the different mathematical formulas. So the actual training that people get in college for their particular master of study is very good. But what happened in our nation is we started establishing what we call general studies, the first two years of college. Now, I don't know if you realize, a lot of nations don't do that. And if you're going to go into engineering, your first semester, you start right off with engineering. But what happens is when you start having these general philosophical studies, you have these people with all these higher you know, uh, philosophies and ideas that don't line up with Scripture, and they're the ones that are training the young people at the most vulnerable age of their life. And you know why I say the most vulnerable? Because they're 18, so they're old enough to be out of the house, but they're young enough to still be greatly influenced by those who they perceive as being so intellectual. And so they go to college, and their first two years, they have all these professors that are telling them that the, you know, all the things that you and I would believe in as being morally true and accurate are wrong, and they have no basis in truth, they have no basis in fact. But the reality is, if you stand on the Word of God as being a true philosophy for life, you can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with any Ph.D. philosopher and you have a better answer than they do because all that they have is just subjective. And so we, as, as believers, need to come to a place where we understand that the Word of God is the truth, just like our silly Charlie, Charlie Brown uh, you know, cartoon. He's sighing, and his sister says, What are you doing that for? It bugs me. And he says, It's scriptural. <laughs> and it really is. I mean, how many times have you been praying and, and, and your heart is just overflowing and you don't know what to pray? That's what that verse is talking about. And so we're going to be looking at some um, difficult portions this morning. And um, if we try to look at it just from the reasoning of man's philosophy and man's thought, it is hard. And, and, and sometimes we might even look at it and say, this is very cruel. But the fact is, there are going to be some interesting points that we'll glean as we go through this portion of Scripture. And uh, the, the, there's a, basically in this portion, there are two main things that are being talked about. Going against the cities, and one city you go against, you offer peace. The other city you go against, you utterly destroy it, every living thing in it. Why? And then we also have a portion in here where it says, if a tree is a fruit-bearing tree, don't cut it down. But if it's not a fruit-bearing tree, you can cut it down and use for a siege work. And they seem like, what, what does all this mean? And this is crazy. But when you dig into it, and you look at the deeper philosophical understanding of it, I mean biblical philosophical, not philosophy, it has great meaning and understanding to it. In fact, I'd encourage each one of you, if you weren't here for Pastor Frank's first uh, service, to listen to his message. He really you know, gets into a lot of these things, and it was, it was excellent. But anyway, if you're in Deuteronomy chapter 20, go to verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they uh, accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and to serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, 
then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you know, that's not a question if he does. It says when he delivers it into your hands. You shall strike every male in, in this, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoils, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the plunder, the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which, you are, uh, which are not the cities of these nations. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain in it. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Lest, listen to this, lest they teach you to do according to their abominations which they have done for their gods. And you shall sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it, um, to take it, when making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy the trees by wielding an axe against them if you can eat of them. You do not cut, uh, cut them down to use in the siege. For the trees of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you shall destroy and cut down to build a siege work against a city that uh, makes war with you until it is subdued. So we're going to find, as we look at this, of course, some of the cities Israel went up against were to be offered terms of peace where others weren't. It was just no peace. We're just going to come in and destroy you. And this is very difficult, if not impossible, for you and I as mere humans to understand but for, but for God, who knows all things, it's not difficult to understand. God has reasons for everything he does. We have to understand that God's very nature is love. He's not cruel. He's not hard-hearted. He's not sadistic. He is love and wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to salvation. So anything that God is doing there is a purpose and a reason for it, even if in our human thinking, we're saying, I don't understand this. This seems somewhat cruel. But this portion is telling us those who accepted peace were to come into subjection to Israel. And what does that speak to us? You and I are children of wrath. I mean, I don't know about you, but before I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if someone said to me, you know, you're probably going to go to hell, I'd say you're probably right. There was something in me that realized that I was out of favor with God. I wasn't going to go to heaven. I was just, you know, a sinner. But the reality is God gave me an offer of peace through Jesus Christ. And I accepted that offer. And I was born again. And now I no longer have a fear of destruction but a hope of glory. You see what I'm saying? And so God who knows all things, he knows and he knew which cities would accept this peace treaty this offer of peace, and which ones wouldn't. And there's a reason that he took such a cruel hand towards those who rejected the offer of peace and also towards those cities that he said, go in and just wipe out. And we'll look at those in a moment. But if you go to Luke chapter 10 and verse 10, I'll wait for you to, it's in 
Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 11. And in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. And so what that portion is telling us is they were sent out as evangelists, as each one of of us are, and they were to go into a city, and they'd proclaim the the kingdom of God, they'd proclaim the free gift of salvation, but if it was completely and totally and fully rejected, then they were supposed to leave and shake off the dust as a testimony against them. In other words, the truth has been brought to you, and you've trampled it underfoot. Well, think about this. If I knew a person who offended me wanted to reconcile guess what? I would. I would want to. I mean, I think all of us in our life have had times that there have been people that, man, we were just, you know, and and, uh, didn't necessarily have good thoughts for. But then a door was opened for reconciliation, and we know that that person also wanted to be reconciled. You're able to work together and come to terms of peace, real peace, just like we do with God. You know, when, when uh, Vi and I have met with couples that are going through struggles and difficulties in their marriage, the very first thing I ask each one of them is this. Do you want your marriage to work? And if they both say yes, it's going to work. We'll work through it. We'll work through the difficulties and problems, and it will work. But if you have one of them that says, no, I don't want this marriage to work. I just want out of it as quick as I can then it's not going to work. And all of my sharing of Scripture and so forth might be in vain. Well, this is the way it is with God. God knows all things. And he wants to bring reconciliation to all people, to all of us. But there has to be that willingness. I mean, how many people, there are people out there, believe it or not, but how many people would you go up to and say, would you like to have the assurance of going to heaven? How many of, many of them would say, no, nah, not really, I'd like to go to hell? Not too many. Most people would say yes. Well, there's that open heart. They want to know the truth. They want to come into a relationship with God. You know, um, now, if there were people in my life that just wanted nothing to do with God, They wanted nothing to do with me. They hated God. They hated Christians. They hated everything about Christianity. Then, according to Scripture, I would have nothing to do with them. I'd pray for them, and I would be praying and hoping that their heart would be changed. But at that point, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. You know why? They'll pull you down. They'll pull you down. Because we might think, well, I'm strong enough. I can be in this situation, that situation. No, we can't. You know, probably most of you know this, but before I came to faith, which is uh, a long time ago now, a whole long time ago now, before I came to faith, I used to drink too much, way too much. And I remember I came to a place where the Lord had really spoken to me about, you know, not drinking, it's a bad testimony, da-da-da-da-da. 
and Vi and I, like a lot of new Christians, we're so on fire, sharing our faith with everybody. We still are on fire, sharing our faith with everyone. And I had a neighbor that lived across from me that I really liked. I liked he and his family, and his family, you know, liked us and, and like that. And I was sharing my faith with him, and, and he seemed very interested. And I invited him to come to church with us the next Sunday, and he agreed to. Then he said, come on, he said, let's have a drink. Oh, no, I don't. He said, look, I got your favorite here. And believe it or not, my, what my favorite was was uh, um, big shot, double shot of whiskey and a beer. I used to drink Boilermakers. Isn't that hard to believe? But I did. And uh, so anyway, I'm thinking to myself, rationalizing, okay? Well, if I just say I'm not going to drink anything, it's going to put him off, and he's going to think I'm a goody-two-shoes net. So I'll go along with it. Well, obviously, I ended up getting drunk. And the next morning, I went over to his house and said, hey, you guys going to go to church with us? You know what his response was? It makes me cry. <laughs> well, nothing to do with it, because I was such a bad testimony for Jesus Christ. And so there are those people that, they're like acid to you to be around. They're like kryptonite. Now, it doesn't mean you don't pray for them. It doesn't mean you don't want them to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then you can become best friends. But there are those, even in our families, that are they're not good for us. You know, um, in Titus chapter 3, and verses 10 and 11, it says this, reject, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So we have to understand, and we have to make some kind of a distinction, that there are some people that are just difficult for us to be around. They don't really care about the things of God, and they would do everything they could to pull you down. You know why? Because if they pull you down, it makes them feel good in their sinful situation. Now, um, those, of course, who accept peace, you welcome in. And you just do everything you can to encourage them and to build them up in the most holy faith. Because we have to understand that if we knew everything that God knew, if we knew in advance everything that God knows in advance, he knows the end, um, the end right from the very beginning, Scripture tells us, if we knew all that, then we'd be equal to God. So the reality is there are things we don't know. There are things we just don't know. But God does. And God, Scripture tells us, is always good. God is, what does Scripture say? Love. We're talking about agapeos love, unconditional love there. God is love. And so his ways, of course, are higher than our ways, and his and he knows things that we don't know. And, and so he realizes um, that there are those situations and peoples that he has to take some kind of a stand against that we don't understand. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you want to move ahead to that chapter a little bit, in verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 4, 32, 4.
And it says, he is the rock. And in your Bible, you'll notice that the R for rock there should be capitalized is talking about the Petros. He is the rock. His, capital H, talking about God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God's perfect. All his ways are just. He never does anything simply out of meanness or to try to get back at people. God is not vindictive. But God is just. And because God is just, he cannot accept sin. Now turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 2 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, go to verse 2. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2. It's on page 768. No, just joking. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 8, 2. <clears throat> and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by God. Or by him. How many times have you thought you really knew something that you didn't? I can tell you a bunch of times I have. I can tell you times I've said, you know, let me, let me just explain this to you. Let me share what's going on here. And I was 100% wrong. Because I thought I knew something that I didn't. Only God knows all things. And I'm not God, and you're not God. So therefore, we always have to look to him, and we have to look to his word. His word is so awesome. And if the philosophies of this world are contrary to the word of God, the philosophies of this world are wrong. But the fact is, you have so many people that have accepted the philosophies of this world over the word of God that our world is in the situation it's in right now. Look at our nation. <clears throat> you know, and, and the number of of babies that are murdered in the womb and the poor women that have subjected themselves to, to this have been convinced by liars that it's not life. And it is life. But yet, we have a whole world, it's not just in this country now, a whole world that accepts that. The fact and the reality of it is that there are so many things in Scripture that this world has just accepted now that is completely wrong. You know, if you say same-sex marriage is sin, well, then you're a hate person. You know, you're, you're, you have a hate gospel. What's the word they use? Hate speech. You're using hate speech. That's right. But the reality is, I don't hate anyone. You want to know something? You could have gay couples walk through our doors. You could have you know, people that are, that are fluid gender and transgender and every other gender coming through these doors, and they would be welcome, and they would be loved, but they would hear the truth, and the truth would set them free. You see. But I think the idea, and there are some Christians that are like that, if you have someone that is involved in one of these kinds of relationships, our automatic feeling is, you know, like there's some kind of a Dracula. 
How are we going to love anybody to Christ if that's our attitude? You know what I'm saying? We have to have that kind of openness. Because we have to realize that Yahweh, the Lord, he doesn't have certain people that he loves and others that he doesn't love. God is not a racist. He can't be a racist. You know why? Because he created man. And when he created Adam and Eve, the genetics for every single race and nationality or every single race was in them. There are many biologists that believe that either Adam or Eve was dark-skinned. We're all human beings. We all bleed the same blood. We have the same organs. And God loves all people. And so God doesn't say, well, I want these people to, to, to be put to death in this city because I hate them. No, no. God has a reason for it, which we'll find out in a moment. See, those nations that he commanded to be destroyed, it was not because of their race or their nationality, but it was because of their heart. Abominable religious practices and idolatry are highly, highly contagious. With some false teachers, it's not what they teach, it's what they don't teach. You might be thinking, what do you mean by that? Well... Go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. What I'm sharing with you, sometimes it's not what they teach that's wrong, it's what they don't teach that's wrong. So if you go to Philippians chapter 4 and go to verse 13. Philippians 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4 and go to verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you have preachers who get up there and preach that. You can do all things. Anything you want to do, you can get rich. You can, anything you want to do, you can do. Well, here's the reality of it. I can't sing. Well, God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Give me a voice. You know, I can't sing. In fact, I'm the only guy in the church that the worship team asks to quiet down a little bit because I'm right in the front and I pull them off key. Here's something else that'll surprise you. I can't dunk a basketball. No matter how hard I try. In fact, at my age, I have a hard time walking down the stairs. But the reality is that's not what that verse means. And yet, how many of you have heard teachings that you can do anything you want? Now, let's go back to the beginning of Philippians 4 and go to verse 11. The same portion. Go back to verse 11 of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, 11. And it says, not, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, listen, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that portion is talking about handling life. I can do all things. If I have difficulties, I can do it. If I have good times, I can do it. If I have hardship, I can do it. 
If I have health problems, I can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, it's something that we need to pray about with people and so forth. Sometimes when people are going through hard times, maybe health problems or, or relationship problems, they're going through hard times and they're saying, I'm happy to, I mean, I'm angry at God for this. It's not God's fault. What do you mean you're angry at God? The closer I get to being with the Lord at my age, I love you, Lord. <laughs> I'm not angry because I've, I mean, you know, it, it's tough when you get older. Let's see. I went to an ENT, actually an otolaryngologist, because I might need nasal surgery. I went to an orthopedic doctor because I might need knee surgery. And I went to my dermatologist because I had to have a biopsy and I might need uh, surgery for skin cancer. So what do I do? I'm so angry at you, God. No, no. Maybe I'm going to check out. <laughs> I want to be happy. I love you, Lord. Take me. <laughs> to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's the promise we have in God's word. But to understand what I mean about taking scripture out of context. I always tell people, when you read a verse of scripture that excites you, read the whole chapter. Put it in its context. Context is king. Now, you know, the whole portion about the trees, this is kind of out of order a little bit. But um, God tells them, the trees that bear fruit, don't cut down. Because they're the food for men. Leave them alone. The trees that don't bear fruit, you can use, cut down and use for siege walls and so forth. But anyway, um, in John chapter 15 and verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So everything we see in the Old Testament is testifying to us its fulfillment in the New Testament. And the trees that bear fruit, you're to leave alone. And so in the same way, if you have trees that bear fruit, leave them alone. Because even though they were commanded to destroy utterly these cities, right? Nothing that breathes was to live. But if there are trees in that city that bear good fruit, leave them alone. Don't cut them down. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Uriah was a Hittite. And he was one of David's mighty men. So obviously, he was a Hittite who believed in Yahweh. So he was not cut down. And so we have to understand that. You know, there might be situations in peoples and so forth. You might be, oh, that church is a, is a horrible church. I wouldn't send my dog to that church. Oh, that... Yeah, but there might be people in there that are bearing fruit. There might be people in that, in that church that are believers. Love them. Encourage them. So we have to be careful that we don't fall into that kind of condemnation. And why did God specify that there were certain cities that were to be, you know, offered peace? And if they took it, great. But if they didn't, you kill all the males, but you spare the women and children. Why is that? Because God, who knows all things, realized that they would not be a distraction or a discouragement to the children of Israel. They would come to faith. 
In fact, we could go through and name a number of people in the Old Testament that were of these cities that became believers and faithful to God. We love the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was not an Israelite. But we love the, the book of Ruth. What a, what a book of love in relationship to explaining our love with God. It's absolutely amazing. Now, also we have to realize there are those cities that God said, when you go in, destroy everybody. Destroy everything, destroy everybody. Why would he do that? Because God knew how contagious their false teaching and dogma was. They were satanic. Do you understand that these cities, they, they worship Baal? Baal, most people say. It was horrible. It was grotesque. They burnt babies in their sacrifice. They took live babies in their walls when they are building their cities. They were horrible. They were satanic. And God knew if you let them live, it's going to end up having an effect on Israel. And guess what? Solomon went in and defeated those cities, but only politically. He let the people live. And what eventually happened? Solomon was pulled down in sin. And Israel was pulled down in sin and ended up being taken into captivity. So we have to understand, brothers and sisters, for you and I as believers, if there's something coming into your life that shouldn't be there, destroy it. Don't let it live. Don't let it linger. Well, it's just, no, 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 no. It's going to pull you down. And you know, there are times, this is the wonderful thing about God, because he not only gives us a first chance or a second chance. or third. Remember Peter said, Lord, how many times should we, should we forgive someone? Seven times? And Peter was being you know, uh, very generous because according to the law of, of the Old Testament, you were only to forgive a person twice. And third time, they were condemned. So when Peter said, shall we forgive a person seven times? He was saying, boy, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm just so open and, and wonderful. And Jesus said, no, you forgive them seven times 70. And, and of course, that's just figurative. It means as many times as they ask forgiveness, you forgive them. And that's the way God is with us. But if there are things in our life, brothers and sisters, that are pulling us down, cut it off. Because if you don't, it's going to pull you down deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, it's funny. I was talking to someone before church as well, and, and uh, I can remember my grandmother and grandfather, who were both born in the 1800s. Um, I'm real old. But anyway, I can remember my grandmother and grandfather, and this is way back, and there was a, a TV show on, on TV called The Kate Smith Show. Some of you probably don't even have any idea what I'm talking about. When the moon comes over the mountain. She was also known for singing the national anthem at the World Series way, way, way back. But I remember them saying, the only decent show on TV is Kate Smith. And all I can imagine is if they were alive today. You can turn on your TV, you can see everything that you shouldn't see. You can hear everything that you shouldn't hear. There's nothing that is filtered any longer on TV. There's no censorship. Whatever it is, right there it is. Well, times have changed. It's, we can handle it. No, you can't. No, you can't handle it. 
it's not good. It's going to pull you down. And I'm not sharing that to put anyone in a guilt trip, just to stand on what the Word of God is saying. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. God knows all things, and he is instructing us to turn away from everything that is idolatrous, everything in our lives that pulls us down. And I don't have to tell you what it is. Everybody knows. What might be a weakness for me is not a weakness for you, and vice versa. But you know what your weaknesses are. And if you have to confess whatever your weakness is, that fall into that weakness, if you have to confess it seven times in a day, confess it. Confess and repent and ask God's help. I was sharing with you earlier in the teaching about how I used to have a drinking problem. And it would be wonderful to say that after I got saved, I said, Jesus, I never want to drink again. And the urge was completely taken away. It wasn't. I still wanted to drink. I was saved, and I was saved for probably two years, and I was struggling with alcohol. And then one day I said, God, I just can't do it anymore. And it was difficult, but I never drank again. Never drank again. And that's longer than probably almost everyone in here has been living that I haven't had, that I don't drink. And so recognize that God challenges us in our life out of love. Because he wants you to live a better life. He wants you to have a better relationship with him. And that's what brings us to communion. Because communion is such a beautiful example of God's love for us. Because he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. You know, we have it on our communion table. And do this in remembrance of me. What does it mean? Remembrance of what? He died for our sins. That's what we remember. He died for our sins. Not just the sins of yesterday, but the sins of today and the sins of tomorrow. He died for our sins. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that every day, you know, when someone pulls out in front of me in traffic and I say, bless you, my son. <laughs> I'm thankful that I can say, God, forgive me for my anger. I mean, probably most of you women are like this. You almost hate to drive with your husbands because uh, Vi said... When I get behind the wheel, it seems like I lose my faith, you know. <laughs> but I'll tell you, men, men have to be patient, too. And I'm really getting off, off track here. But I just wonder how many of you guys understand what I'm talking about when I say this. You're going someplace, all right, with your wife, and you tell your wife, well, we're almost there. Well, we're pulling in the parking lot. And so you pull in the parking lot, and you get out of the car, and it's about 14 below zero, and you're standing there freezing, and your wife's putting on her shoes and checking her hair in the mirror, and I'm thinking, yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, why didn't you do that 10 minutes ago? But anyway, we all have our issues. We all have our issues. But the point is, when God said, do this in remembrance of me, it's the very fact that he died for sin, for all sin. You can bring the young people in. Come on right in, my darlings. You know, communion is, is a beautiful thing, and especially for children. You know why they're innocent? They're innocent. You know, you have some places where, well, you can't take communion until you're a certain age and you've gone through, you know, certain classes and this and that. I don't find that in the Bible. And children to participate in communion is a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful thing for you and I 
because it's a reminder that though our sins were scarlet, like the, the fruit of the vine, in our case, Welsh's grape juice, and it was scarlet. We've been washed as white as snow. What a reminder that is. What Jesus did for us, while we were yet his enemies, he died on the cross out of love. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for this sacrament that we call communion and the realization that whatever our sins might be, we've been washed clean, and we can continue to be washed clean. We need our feet washed a lot, Lord, and we're thankful that you're the one that does it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would prepare everyone's heart to receive this communion this morning. And I ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Brothers?
You know, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, the first thing he did was take the bread. And it would have been like this. It, it was unleavened bread. It would have been matzah. And the point of it is, leaven was always analogous to sin. And there was no sin in the bread. No leaven in the bread. As there was no leaven in Jesus Christ, there was no sin in him. And he who is without sin became sin for us. What a loving God, willingly to allow his body to be broken for no other reason than, than he knew you personally by name and he died for you. You were on his thoughts at the very moment he died because he's God. Therefore, he passed the bread and the cup to his disciples and he said, take, eat and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And let's do the same, brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord, for this sacrament we call communion. I pray that you'd bless it to our spiritual nourishment and help us to walk in all your ways and not the ways of this world. I give you thanks, Lord, for this body of believers. I give you thanks for salvation. I give you thanks for your word. I give you thanks for all things, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, my friends.